The following episode deals with explicit descriptions of violence that can be disturbing or distressing to some listeners. These include descriptions of murder and torture, possible mentions of death, suicide, and rape, and sound effects that recall violence and gunfire. If you want to skip these parts of the podcast, timestamps with specific trigger warnings can be found on our website or on the description section. Please be advised. Marcos is obsessed with money and power. He loves wealth, luxury, and he doesn't care that others have to suffer or have their lands and lives stolen, as long as his wife can literally buy buildings in New York. If his cronies are happy and continue to support his regime, then he'll let them take what they want too. Cash, Rolexes, and especially land. Welcome to Yugto, a podcast where we dig up Filipino history and get really mad about it. No, we're not getting mad about communists today. We're still mad about martial law and all the people who died during that time. But we're also mad at corporate greed. Today, we revisit the story of the hero of the Cordilleras, Makliing. In a tale as old as time as far as the Philippines is concerned, it starts with corporate plunder and ends with the death of a righteous man. The Chico Dam was going to be a hallmark project of Ferdinand Marcus's regime. A 1,000-megawatt hydroelectric power plant. It was going to be a 1,400-square-kilometer structure and would provide a shit-ton of power to everyone, everywhere. The project was even going to be financed by the World Bank. Sounds great in every way, except there was one teeny-weeny catch. Dozens of communities, indigenous ones, occupied the lands that were where the dams were planned to be situated in. The people who lived in the area, predominantly the indigenous tribes in the Kalinga and Bontok land, were being pesky. They were offered small amounts of money to take the L and leave. The indigenous people, instead, were causing an uproar, clamoring that the Chico Dam project be stopped. It was a problem. A 100,000-person-wide problem. A 1,000-families-wide problem. A 70-million-ish pesos worth of farmland problem. Why would the Kalinga and Bondok people do this? Wouldn't the truly Filipino thing to do at this point for the good of the country and its reputation, be to willingly leave so the amazing Chico Dam could be built? It was because the Kalinga and the Bondok, like many indigenous tribes all over the world, not just the Philippines, don't just live on the land that they stand on. The land isn't just something that they inherit and that they manage financially. No, because they're indigenous, the land pretty much is the lives of their communities and themselves. As far as they are concerned, their land is not given by government, but it is a gift from God. The indigenous people didn't want to leave the lands they'd been raised in, that they felt a spiritual connection with, that their ancestors had been buried in. The 1,400 square kilometers the structure encompassed would trample and slash or submerge farms, orchards, graveyards, and of course, countless homes. You may as well would have asked a Catholic to burn the church they go to every Sunday, plus their house. 
Before they even offered money, they were offering small-ass trinkets to those living in the Chico area. They were offering truckloads of food, chocolate bars, basketballs, flashlights, and other trinkets. Random things. This was how much they underestimated them. And so the Kalinga and Bondok women dismantled campsites of project surveyors. Women displayed their tattoos in front of soldiers and did other ceremonial acts to curse them and grant them bad luck. They prayed to their gods to spread their rage against the project. And most of all, over and over, unfailingly, they refused to leave. It's December 1975. Frustrated by the project delays caused by the opposition, Ferdinand Marcos himself issued Presidential Decree Number 848, constituting the municipalities of Lubuagan, Tinglayan, Tanudan, and Pasil into a Kalinga Special Development Region, or KDSR, in an effort to neutralize the opposition to the Chico Dam. At this point, though, the establishment of the KSDR doesn't really do a lot because the opposition is already united. Several tribes that had long been feuding were now beginning to have meetings together and to have large gatherings in order to have organized action against the Marcos regime. It's December 1979, four years later, and the elders and leaders of the different affected areas, perhaps fearing an escalation in efforts to displace them four years after the establishment of the KSDR, organize more protests. Now, there are more than 2,000 indigenous people participating. Makleeng Dulag is an elder of the Butbut tribe. It was here Dulag became the opposition's official spokesperson. Makleeng was known to be calm compared to his fellow leaders and very good with his words. It is this confidence and sense of righteousness that attracted people, that made the Bondok and Kalinga and other tribes mortal enemies unite to fight the common enemy. With the different communities scattered around now putting aside their usual squabbles, it becomes increasingly difficult to push any of them this way or that. Not to mention, the earlier proclamation of the KSDR brought renewed journalistic interest in the area. So Makliing, in all his eloquence, steps up to give interviews and sound bites galore. He talks about the pride of his people, their inheritance in the land, and how they are not going to be moved. Of course, these are just unarmed indigenous men and women. It would be frighteningly easy to wipe all of them out tell the press they were communist elements, and call it a day. If the corporate cronies of Marcos were to do something like this, barely any of the community members could read or write, much less practice the legal profession. So there would be likely very little repercussions, if any at all. Unfortunately, if there's something that Marcos cares more than appealing to his corporate plundering cronies, it's saving face internationally. And with this project being done in coordination with the World Bank, they can't just commit another massacre without incurring further judgment from already wary international allies. It doesn't take a scientist to know at this point that Makliing might just be the key to cracking the whole resistance. The men with the money and the agenda figure 
that if they can get Tamaklaying to support the project, or if they can get him to see the advantage of relocation, then the rest of his people would follow. The first thing they try to do is bribe him. Again, like Primitivo Mejares, the journalist who testified in front of the U.S. Congress, the offers for his cooperation for him to lay his morality down are hefty and juicy. They first try to appeal to prestige, with a sprinkling of wealth. They say to Makli'ing, they will make him a coordinator of the KSDR project meaning he more formally becomes a leader of the tribes that are following him already. On top of that, he gets a massive salary. So much money as to be richer than nearly everyone in his communities combined. Makli'ing listens to all these offers, and firmly, to everyone's frustration, declines. They try to appeal to Makli'ing's manhood. Filipino politicians aren't shy about their desire for women for pleasure, and they figure they can find common ground with Makli'ing in that respect. The story goes that Makli'ing was called in for further negotiations with the project heads. Par for the course at this point, as the two sides have been going around in circles for years. He went to the foundation base and he was led to a room. Makli'ing, rehearsing his usual defense statements, curious about the fanfare, sees something that absolutely boggles the mind. The room that he's led to is full of women. Young, pretty, none of whom he's ever seen in his life. Likely the rest of the men chuckle at his speechless reaction. They rib each other and the girls, scantily clad, try their best simpering smiles at the still speechless motionless target. <laughs> Someone asks Makli'ing to go ahead and pick one for the night. Makli'ing doesn't even consider it for a second. Still in a state of shock and a growing flurry of anger, he shakes his head and asks firmly to leave, even as they try increasingly to persuade him to stay. They tried to be direct with the cash offers then. Of all people, Manuel Manda Elizalde, who held the lofty title Presidential Assistant on National Minorities, asked to meet Makli'ing. Surely a man with a title like this might actually have the best interests of the Kalinga and Bondok at heart. Of course not. After all, the first words in the title is Presidential Assistant. At the brief meeting, Makli'ing cautiously expects more discussions. Instead, the man slides an envelope across the table. The envelope is substantial, fat, full of promise. By all means, open it, Elizalde says, almost pleadingly. But Makli'ing has had months to years of these tricks already. He outright refuses to even touch the envelope, saying, There can be one of two things in this envelope, a letter or money. Since I am illiterate, this is hardly a letter. As for money, it is only given to someone who has something to sell. I have nothing to sell. After wealth and women and what have you, there is nothing left but threats for Makli'ing. Death 
dismemberment, disappearances, all the usual of martial law. However, Makliing does not succumb to these gestures, partly because of his Cordilleran pride, but also because he believes so strongly in his own cause that he is, without question, willing to die for it. Makliing decisively says in an interview, the question of the dam is more than political. The question is life, our Kalinga life. Apo Kabunian, the lord of us all, gave us this land. It is sacred, nourished by our sweat. It shall become even more sacred when it is nourished by our blood. It is 24 April 1980. Dulag Makliing is at home. Perhaps it is a typical night for him. Dinner, relaxation, rest. Perhaps it is a restless night. Planning, coordinating, anticipating the Marcos regime's next move. The night is quiet in the mountains. Only the wind, the hushed voices from other houses, the shuffling of animals permeate the air. Every night in Makliing's life growing up in the mountains has been like this, which is what makes the knocks so heart-wracking. Of course, they likely hear the shuffling before the knocking. The boots trampling the earth, the guns slapping against thighs. As the horde of soldiers approach Makliing's house, soldiers of the army's 4th Infantry Division under Lieutenant Leo Degario Adalem. The men march into the small community. Then, as majority stand a little bit away, one of them walks right up to Makliing's door and knocks. The next few things happen quickly. Quietly, Makliing rushes to the door. The knock against the door finds Makliing already leaning against it, holding it close in case the knock is followed by a body trying to barrel through. Makliing is not going to answer the door. Paramilitary forces in the middle of the night? Makliing knows how stories like this end. He can't die yet. He has to save his people from the dam. But the men on the other side of the door have a mission as well, and they're impatient to fulfill it. The one soldier at the door knocks, loudly, forcefully. Makliing hisses at his wife to help him hold the door close or lock it. This action, innocuous as it is, dooms him. Until then, the men outside might think that it's them against an empty house. But Makliing's shuffling makes the lights move under the door. They peer under the door and see the unmistakable shadows of his feet. This is all they need. The man at the door backs up, and as one, the whole force outside the door raise their guns and fire. The door is wooden, and Makliang's body is just like any other man's. The bullets tear through both easily as if they were nothing. The breath is knocked out of Makliing, and he collapses right against the door he was leaning against. 
Blood gushes out of a wound on his right side and his pelvis. Yet again a reminder, no matter how transcendent his words were, he is only just a man. The village hears the commotion. We can imagine that Makliing's wife screams and cries at the sight. In the quiet of the night in his own home, in the community he had lived his whole life, Makliing dies. Peter Dungok, a fellow leader and Makliing's friend, living close by, suffers the same fate. A second round of gunshots and death. Afterwards, without ceremony, the paramilitary forces leave, their job well done. The village mourned, but did not weep. This was what was said of the community's mourning of their leader. They were absolutely saddened, but no one was surprised. They all knew what had happened, and they knew why it happened. Despite the pain of Makliing's loss, there was no time for anger or tears. There was still work to be done. They buried Makliing ceremonially in the same clothes he was shot in. Blood was still over his shirt, stained, pooled around the holes where the bullets had ripped through. They lay him to rest, but not in a posture of rest. They said that as they buried him, they positioned him in such a way to signify that his spirit would remain restless, that it would vengefully remain ever-present to continue to make things difficult for the enemy. Now whether you believe in that sort of thing or not, the fact is that Makliing Dulag did have one last revenge against the Marcos regime. He was silenced, but his death had a loud and lasting impact on the rest of the country. Leonor Aureus, writing in 1985 for the National Press Club, noted that in the decades since 1972, there had been no open and serious confrontation between the mainstream press and the military following the wave of arrests after martial law was declared. This murder, Makliing's murder, changed things. The story of Makliing's murder was investigated by journalists and made into performances by artists and playwrights. Newspapers, leashed and censored as they were, got out the story of the Cordilleran leader murdered in his own home in the dark of the night in the mountains. And while these stories didn't point fingers as to who did what, it really wasn't difficult to put two and two together. A man who was a leader figure against a project headed by Marcus Cronies? An unceremonious assassination? It had the Marcus regime's fingerprints all over it. Like with Nino Aquino, like with Father Flavio Tullio, and other high-profile deaths throughout martial law. It became difficult for the government to execute its usual tactic of deflecting the story. As a result, the military men in the area had to be taken in for questioning, even though they were likely just following orders from the same men in the interviewing panel. Even better, because of all the controversy around it, the Cordilleran communities only rallied even harder, this time with voices tinged with mourning. The World Bank washed their hands of the process, 
and it became unmanageable for Team Marcos to continue trying to execute the project in the area. After years and years and years of roughhousing and bullying to get what they wanted, they ended up shooting themselves in the foot. It took his brutal death, but in the end, Makliing succeeded. The Marcos government had to throw up their hands in defeat. Without ceremony, the Chico Dam project was abandoned. Makliing's descendants own his ancestors' lands to this day. We don't forget Makliing. We don't forget all those indigenous people who died during martial law. We remember them today and thank them for fighting against impossible odds. We have a responsibility to fight for the people who do not have power to fight for themselves. To this day, the indigenous of the Philippines are outmaneuvered, outcashed, or otherwise outright forced to leave their lands and their heritage. This didn't just happen under Marcos, although surely it was bad then. It happens until now. Indigenous people are displaced, massacred, rendered helpless by the cruelty of the Filipino government and towering corporations. The act of remembering is even more vital on behalf of those of smaller cultures, especially indigenous ones, who more typically pass their stories down orally instead of through writing, as most of them are illiterate. Today, Makliing's house where he made his last stand, where the bullets tore through the door and into his body, is owned by someone else. The plaque in his village that used to commemorate him is now faded, its words only living on vaguely in the heads of his grandchildren, who were made to memorize the words as children. A memorial of his and fellow Cordilleran martyrs Ama Lumbaya Gayudan and Pedro Dungok Sr. was defaced recently in an act assumed to be politically motivated. Some even saying it was by the Philippine National Police. Now in the year 2021, there are talks yet again of building a dam around this same area. And once again, it's corporations against the indigenous people whose entire lives and histories are staked on this land. Remembering is an active act. April 24 continues to be celebrated as Cordillera's People's Day. But beyond celebration, we must remember Makliing, the martial law martyr and the stories of many like him. Recalling stories, making sure they aren't forgotten, so that those who allowed atrocities to happen under their watch don't get away with it. That's a small but important act of revolution in itself. Thank you for listening, remembering, and getting angry with us today. Yugto is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for the episode can be found on the website. Support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.ph at gmail.com. Finally, help us get these stories out there by sharing us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or any social media. Join us next fortnight for another episode, and remember, 
Activism is not terrorism. Truth is not terrorism. See you next time and keep fighting the good fight.